Welcome to Home Office. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Sharice Lutzen. Hi, Sharice. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. It's Friday. It's Friday, and we're recording this intro in person for once. I know. And it's also Burger Week. It's also Burger Week here in Uptown St. John. Um, it's been very exciting. Have you checked out any of the uh, the restaurants yet? Well, I'm a vegetarian, so my options are limited. Right. And But I'm a big fan of Vegilution's Tofu Burger. It's called the Kentucky Fried Tofu Burger. It's I've a heard, specialty of theirs. I've heard great things. And actually, I've been to Vegilution before, and like I'm not a vegetarian. And the normal burger that they have on their menu is incredible. Like, you wouldn't even... It's like actually, I'd say, one of the best burgers in the city. So I'm sure they're knocking it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we're probably making people in other cities jealous, because I do know that, you know... Uh, most maritime cities do have a burger week uh, yeah. at different times of the year. Mm. Um, but I apologize to our listeners in other cities if you're still waiting for your burger week. Yeah, sorry. It sucks to be you. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I uh, went to my first one last night at East Coast Bistro, and I got their buffalo chicken burger, which was absolutely incredible. Um, I was sad when I finished it. <laughs> um, and then after work, when we're done here today, I'm going to be going to Cask and Kettle, which apparently is booked up. I saw them make a post on Facebook before I uh, before I came in saying that they literally only have a few spots left like tomorrow early afternoon. So I'm really happy I made some reservations earlier this week. Well, now you consider yourself lucky, Sharice, because this was my, my one shot. Right. Because uh, my wife and I uh, last night uh, discussed, you know, wouldn't it be a nice treat to take, take our 9-year-old and 11-year-old out to a, a place to during burger week and have a burger and we we quickly talked ourselves out of it when we realized that we'd be sitting there spending nearly a hundred dollars uh with two fighting children who didn't like their burgers because they didn't <laughs> taste like mcdonald's or wendy's it wasn't right. the baconator yeah exactly <laughs> and i love me a baconator but no this is the there there's some i'm looking forward to i might be getting their the nacho burger from cask and cattle tonight i think i decided on that one so um, I'll, I'll report back next episode and tell you how that was. But <laughs> Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll get to enjoy more Burger Week when my kids are older. Uh, <laughs> but just to, to tie this one up, Sharice, because I know that's not what we're here to talk about no. today. But how can you not talk about burgers during I, Burger Week? Yeah, any excuse to talk about food I'm here for. So yeah. is, uh, is a really heartening thing, is, and this is heartening for other cities that, you know, also we're all, all maritime communities are, are struggling with their restaurants and, and getting them back on track during COVID-19. And, uh, you know, in fact, we just had a story in Huddle um, this morning, um, in the morning we're recording this interview, talking about the struggles, the restaurant industry, and, and the fact that we could see a lot of closures over the next few months. And all that by way of saying, I was really encouraged because all week, you know, I've had, I had to go into a Gahan house to just to get some beer from the fridge. And I had to fight through the line of people wanting to have burgers at Gahan House. Right. And I've seen the same thing uh, around the city this week. And for all the maritime cities, it's, it's kind of heartening because it's like it's like those little glimmers of hope. People still do want to get out to restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have to get them all through this uh, this period where we're taking some care. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and um, yeah, I know. I know like these t- types of events. I know are often bring like a lot of extra stress on the people that work at restaurants. But I have a feeling that it might be uh, the busyness is welcome, really welcome this time around, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So who are we talking to this week? Well, this week, um, yeah, pivoting from burgers uh, to high tech. 
That's the pivot that we're making here. That's quite the pivot. Uh, We are talking to uh, a a writer named Gordon Pitts, and he's uh, an Ontario-based business writer who's taken a lot, has a long-standing interest in Atlantic Canadian entrepreneurs. He's he'd written a book uh, called The Cod Fathers, which was a I love that title. <laughs> and we're, we're on, by the way, we can't resist the joke. We're on to the Code Fathers. Oh my God. For this one. Oh God. <laughs> so the Code Fathers, just did in brief, was uh, was a, a portrait he wrote of different um, uh, Atlantic Canadian entrepreneurs from some of the big, the big sort of dynastic families that we think of in this region. Uh, you know, from the Irvings and the McCains to other families, and and so he wrote that book. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact date, but it was around. It's actually around 20 years ago now that he wrote that book. Uh, but he's like I said, he had long-standing interest. Uh, you know, from his desk at the Globe Mail, he's not a full-time person there anymore, uh, but was a long-standing Globe Mail editor and writer, and uh, who took an interest in Atlantic Canadian business people. And uh, you know, he he broke uh, a great series of stories uh, several years ago. He was the first person to write about the the breakup of the of the Irving empire into different pieces right. you know Irving Oil and and JD Irving and uh, and the companies uh, controlled by uh, by Jack Irving's family and he so he wrote about them separating and starting to operate those as you know separate separate uh, entities and uh, so you know a guy who's very much in the know here even though he's based in Ontario and uh, the book we're going to, to discuss today he just got released this week and it's called unicorn in the woods and it's the story of a couple of companies Therese, in the in the new brunswick tech world that you know a lot of us familiar with with business in this province as business in the region know about it's uh, q1 labs and radiant six uh, two very successful startups um, you know 10 10 years ago or more now uh, that were at the time sold for nearly a billion dollars between the two of them mm. and so while you know the New Brunswick tech world um, is under the radar for a lot of like ordinary New Brunswickers uh, people sure you know stood up and took notice when those two companies were, were sold for the, uh, the that price tag and uh, they were both kind of on on, on the, the leading edge of you know big tech sectors at the time that, that are still big big sectors Q1 Labs um, cybersecurity had developed a cybersecurity product that uh, that was uh, popular with a lot of companies across North America, a lot of big companies, and Radiant Radiant Six had developed uh, a uh, program that um, a software program that uh, that did social media analysis, and so for companies that wanted to understand how they were perceived in social media and be able to respond, Radiant Six had developed a, a product that quickly became very popular. Uh, so what of New Brunswick, uh, we had produced these two very successful high-tech companies um, that were, you know, great in their own right. And then, but really, people really stood up and took notice when they were, they were purchased um, for hundreds of millions of dollars each. And, and the entrepreneurs that were at the heart of this were really interesting people. Like um, Chris Newton was kind of the, the brainchild, actually, for both companies in terms of the actual product offering. There ended up being a lot of people that came in and, and, and helped Chris out. And then... He also had uh, a lot of really big business people that got behind him in this province. You know, he got you know Jerry Pond, of you know, uh, of kind of from NBTEL, um, who had been a CEO of NBTEL and then had gone on to like spark all kinds of, of startups in in the region and still does. It's a huge influence, uh, both in terms of the money he invests and also the time he dedicates to help entrepreneurs grow their companies. Uh, Brian Flood who was really the business lead behind 
uh, Q1 Labs in the beginning. Um, and what's really interesting about this book, Sharice, and it's interesting because one of my friends on, on LinkedIn yesterday, uh, she got an early copy of this because it just went on the newsstands on, uh, it just got on the, the, the stands on midweek this week, called it a page turner. Really? A tech business book yes. that's called a page turner. And we have to repeat that. And then I did in my interview with Gordon, I was like, you really succeeded here, Gordon. Because oh. you, you wrote a book that people are calling a page turner about He's the New Brunswick tech economy. <laughs> and in and, and brief, because we're going to get right on to this interview, Sharice, the, re, the, the, the secret to it with Gordon is that he really dug in and told the stories behind the growth of these companies. Right. Uh, the people behind them. Um, their quirks and uh, you know their interests and their characters. Like he really went into the characters uh, behind these companies and really told their stories and told them well. He also really amplifies big themes that we're continuing to discuss here, right? Can, mm. In the land of, of oil and and and, and forestry um, and beer, you know, and and the fisheries, uh, to name you know some some big industries here and some of the big families that are in business here. Um, what are our opportunities in tech, right? In, in, that, in that modern economy to, to be able to, to grow in the way we've grown those other industries. And so he's able to really amplify those themes um, through the story of these companies and, uh, and the people who built them. Awesome, well, I'm looking forward to hearing this one. All right. So why don't we get to it? I'm excited, so let's go to my chat with Gordon. Morning, Gordon. Uh, good morning, Mark. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, um, pretty well, considering uh, this pandemic and all that goes with it. Great. Where where am I finding you this morning? Where are you? Uh, uh, rural Ontario, uh, on on a lake, uh, actually in a building built by my grandfather in the 1890s. So uh, it, it has a strong, it's my roots. I'm back in my roots, uh, like I'm sure many, many people are these days, uh, um, uh, just waiting it out and enjoying life here. Right. So where, where in rural Ontario would you be then? Where? Um, but halfway between Toronto and Ottawa, just north of Belleville, Ontario, just near the shield, right at the edge of the, um, of the, uh, Laurentian, uh, shield, the, uh, um, and, um, so it's kind of part, part agrarian, part agricultural, but very much like parts of New Brunswick, uh, um, very rugged, beautiful landscape is it, is it like a small town or, or are you in a, a fairly secluded place um it's on a part of what was my family farm that just happened to be on a lake it's two miles out of the little town called madoc where i grew up and uh my parents actually besides farming ran a little um they were kind of entrepreneurial they ran a tourist resort here and uh, still is maintained uh, with my sister and brother-in-law involved in it so and we've carved off this little place for our family cottage in this old house, actually, that was built, as I say, over a hundred about 120 years ago. So it's uh, it's a um, it's a special place for me, and it's it, market. It actually ties in. I come from an area that isn't particularly exotic, doesn't get mentioned in a lot of the. It's not one of the hot it spots for technology, and it's it scrapes out uh, a a really good existence, uh, but it has to work for it. And uh, it has all the attributes of small town life, and all the all the all the challenges too. Right, and I know we may uh, we we'll, may dig into this a little bit later in the interview because it comes up in your book um, in relation to one of the companies you write about. But there's a, a farming background in your family. Absolutely, my father was a dairy farmer and 
grandfather was a mixed farmer. We've been on this chunk of land since 1876. And um, so uh, it's been partly tourism and partly farming all that time. And uh, yeah, absolutely farming. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, Gordon, because I've been, you know, followed your, your journalism career for a long time. Um, and you, you have a deep background in, in writing about Atlantic Canadian entrepreneurs. And, you know, you, you, you did things like you were, you were the first journalist to write about how the Irving Empire was, was, was starting to, to break up and, 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 you know, take, you know, three very distinct shapes with, uh, with oil and forestry and then Jack Irving's uh, companies. Um, you know, and, and you, you wrote a book, you know, The Codfathers. I mean, you've written a lot about Atlantic Canadian entrepreneurs. What, what, what is the interest for you? Well, it's interesting. I've been uh, interested in writing about the Maritimes. And I think it comes a bit out of my interest with areas that aren't the predictable. Uh, I know there's entrepreneur, aren't the predictable commercial hotspots, the uh, not the Torontos or Montreals or Vancouver's um, because I grew up in an area with very strong entrepreneurial flavor. And I knew this sometimes got overlooked and there are heroes there, people that need to be, uh, need to be emulated, people that need to be celebrated. And I think about, um, you know, 30 years ago, I first did a feature interview with, uh, with Harrison and, and Wallace McCain in Florenceville. And, uh, it was for the, uh, for the Financial Post at that time I was working and I was just absolutely uh, uh, bowled over by Harrison McCain at a charisma and, and Wallace McCain and his steady, steady judgments on the world. And um, so I wrote that article. I just started a, a real interest in this area of the country. Then in um, about uh, 20 years ago, I guess now, I can't believe it, um, a publisher came to me and said, uh, you know, I've been looking at these maritime entrepreneurs, these old families, but also some of the new ones. I think we should do a book about that. And I said to the publisher, but I'm not a maritimer and I'm not Atlantic Canadian. Uh, I'm, I'm, from east, I'm from the east, but it's eastern Ontario. And uh, she said, no, I, I think an outsider's view would be good. Um, I think it would be a, a different approach because so many of the books written are insider books. And, and I had a lot of respect for those books because I used them in my background. A lot of them are very good. And, um, but I went forward and wrote the book and it, it touched a nerve, I think, uh, um, because it did celebrate these stories. But I think I cast a cool glance at these companies and these family empires. And, uh, and ever since that moment, 15, 20 years ago, I've been writing about the Maritimes. It's been sort of my uh, background, some of my uh, it's been part of the um, repertoire I bring to the game as a knowledge of the maritime business, which not every business journalist does because it's private. Sometimes the companies are very opaque. Now, um, just taking you up to the present, uh, um, uh, about uh, when I was at, still at the Globe and Mail as a business reporter uh, about 12, 11, 12 years ago, uh, somebody told me that, uh, by the way, there have been these two huge uh high-tech exits in uh, New Brunswick. And I said, well, you know, that's a pretty narrow story. Uh, how big are they? And they said, well, cumulatively, cumulatively the dollar sum is a billion dollars. And I go, oh, that's significant in any part of the country in those days, in any part of North America. And, uh, of course, that's what uh, got me into my 
latest book. But in between then, but The Codfathers was really the, really the spark. That's the old families. Now I'm embraced the idea of, of, uh, of going after and examining the new entrepreneurs, the new Codfathers, the Codefathers, if you wish. <laughs> uh, 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 a high compliment to you, and I'm sure you've heard this before, um, but uh, a friend of mine uh, on social media um, last yesterday you called your new book a page turner. And, uh, and you know, and that struck me, right? Because we're, we're talking about a book about, you know, the Atlantic tech scene and, and to, you know, companies and the stories of their, their rise and then, and then their sale and kind of the aftermath of that. And, and I just, I kind of chuckled because I thought, wow, you know, a, a book, a book about Atlantic tech called a page turner. Um, when I, but when I picked it up, I, you know, I read it, I read through this book in part because I, I you know, I need to finish it. I'll, you know, I'll confess to you, I was a journalist on deadline. Um, I had to finish this book for our chat. Uh, but I, it, it really was, it's, it was a compelling story. You know, I sat down over the, a couple of days and, and read through this book with, with great enjoyment and interest and didn't really ever want to put it down, Gordon. Um, so you re, you know, you really accomplished something there for a business book. Well, um, I've always approached business as uh, from the point of view, there are great human stories embedded in the numbers and embedded in all the strategic moves. There are real people, real flesh and blood. And above all, I want, I tell you, uh, Mark, I had, when I approached this, I said, how do I, how do I do this? And I was approached actually by a couple of people at University of New Brunswick, not that they sponsored it. They just thought this would be a great idea. And um I, I played with it for a while because I couldn't get excited about it. And then I, I started to burrow into it and I found the stories of these people. And that's when I decided to do the book, when I, I could suddenly connect with the people. Um, and um, that's um, that was my motivation at the beginning was this is a great human story. This is a great personal story of young men and women in an endeavor which they were relentless and ambitious and just like, People in Silicon Valley are, are ambitious young people everywhere, and yet they have a particular New Brunswick uh, personality or approach to life, which I think I try to bring out in the book as well. And that's what really grabbed me, uh, the story of Chris Newton and Marcel Lebrun and, and Jerry Pond and Brian uh, Flood is that these are just amazing people in any marketplace, in any community, and the people they drew, brought along with them, like Brian Dumphy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's um, Daniela DeGrasse, what a great personality she is. So, you know, that's that's what drove me. And then I said, but how can I make this story uh, wider than New Brunswick? And I said, you know, this is the model for um, innovation and entrepreneurship in any region which feels it's been left out or somehow off the beaten path and my region here in Ontario being one of them. So I said, this is a story that will resonate with people right across this country because it's so important that we, we uh, narrow the digital divide in this country. So that's, that, that's sort of the way I looked at the book. Yeah. And when I, uh, when I, I had sort of, I think the good fortune of, you know, last week I, I spoke with, uh, Donald Savoie who had just come out, uh, a little bit earlier, you know, a month or two ago with this book on Irving oil and Casey and, and Arthur. And so I went from reading, uh, Donald's book to reading your book. And so, you know, I saw very clearly in reading those, you know, the echoes between, 
you know, uh, a, a builder from many generations ago in KC, uh, you know, a, a proud New Brunswick, a proud Atlantic Canadian who, you know, uh, in that case was, you know, focused, we were focusing on building, he was focused on building that oil company. Obviously the Irving Empire is much more diverse than that, but was focused on that. And then I, you know, I went to your book and, and I started to read about, you know, Brian, I know, uh, you know, some of these people very well, just uh, through covering business here and, and through the community here, but you know, reading the stories of, you know, uh, uh, Jerry Pond and, and Brian Flood and, and their commitment to, to not only building great companies, but to doing it here. Um, several generations later, there were strong echoes. So I, what I'd love to do with you is, is take you back a bit to, uh, you know, obviously people are going to read this book, uh, but for those, you know, who haven't yet, because it's just a, a couple of days on the shelves, um, tell me a little bit about the, you know, the early days of these companies and, and, you know, what were the ingredients for success and, you know, what did they do right coming out of the gate and, and who were the characters? And, you know, it's probably the, the most appropriate place to start, obviously, is, uh, is Q1 Labs. Yeah, I mean, the Q1 lab story and the Radiant 6 story, the two stories that are the four in the spine of the book, are, are quite different, uh, and they, they have slightly different um, messages. So let's start with Q1 Labs. Um, it really came out of University of New Brunswick, and a young man named Chris Newton, who was in his late 20s, uh, back around the year 2000, and uh, he was working not he was he was kind of a not a dropout, but he had left university uh, to work um, in the IT services department of the University of New Brunswick. Uh, it was a way to fund his university education. He never really got back to finishing his degree, which was a detention. And the three founders did do not have university degrees. Uh, which is perhaps a lesson. I wouldn't take that too far. I think the, the experiences they had in the university degree program formed their experiences in their life, but they don't technically have degrees, which is interesting. Um, they, um, Chris was working on practical things, and I think that's an important lesson. Sometimes innovation is not found in the lab or with the PhD student or the academic, all very important. They all have their role. Sometimes it's just people fixing things. And Chris decided he had a novel way of fixing the cybersecurity attacks that were dragging down the uh, UNB network in those days. And he came up with something, a, a fresh new approach uh, uh, to, uh, the, to look at flows of, uh, of data and uh, rather than individual packets. Uh, and he, by accident, he was invited to go to a, um, go to a meeting, um, uh, a show and tell meeting to uh, alumni, investors. This was 2000, 20 year, exactly two, 20 years ago, investors, alumni. Uh, and he was the youngest person there uh, showing his little invention, his little development. And these, uh, there was a guy there named Brian Flood, who absolutely relentless, ball of energy, big guy. And Brian heard Chris's talk and suddenly started peppering him with questions. And uh, Chris sort of uh, tried to answer as well as he could. He sort of shied, he slunk away to the catacombs of the uh, IT services department. And Brian followed him. Brian Flood, this entrepreneur who ran a bunch of a couple of sports bars in Moncton and St. John, uh, Brian followed him because Brian thought that he had finally found the game changer 
not, not, not even for himself, but for the province of New Brunswick. And he would not let this guy, Chris Newton, shy and kind of working as a techie, he would not let this guy escape. And the, he eventually said, what's your, what's your business model? Um, you know, what's your financing? Uh, are, will you go public? And Chris admitted he knew nothing about what Brian, it was a foreign language to Chris Newton, the young techie. And they formed the partnership that uh, laid the basis. And so you, you see there in the origin story of Q1 Labs, some of the ingredients, uh, it's, not, it's never one person. It's never an individual. It's never a sole techie. It's usually a combination of people. And um, a university is a great, great greenhouse of activity. Um, whether it's research or if it's guys and a lot of young women, actually. And this story is full of young women. But in this case, it was the guys working in the um, in the balls of the um, uh, of the university and the, and uh, who put it together. And um, so you have that. It's it's teams. It's a team approach, uh, often in a university or some kind of setting institution that brings people together. Um, but Brian brought the also desire for capital, just a relentless search for capital in the uh, in the United States, because he felt this would be big and it would need the um, it would need the um, um, input of large amounts, capital, 44 million. I mean, not large by global scales, but in those days for a tech startup in New Brunswick, uh, he thought 40 million would be needed from venture capitalists. And he, they did 64 interviews until um, they found a, a West Coast um, venture capitalist that would back the company. And again, you need relentless, you need aspiration in these things. Um, and I think that's one of the other lessons. So eventually they did. And with Brian in particular too, he, he had already done a lot of groundwork and homework. Eh? He'd already mm-hmm. like spent time in, in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley and, and was assessing opportunities and, and already starting to form relationships. Um, so he, he sort of brought that to the table in terms of helping, uh, you know, steer the direction originally of the company. Eh? Brian had done a lot of research. Brian is a, a, an omnivore. He's 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 just a soaker up of uh, information um, on markets, uh, on technology, um, and he he is consumed by projects. And he had made um, he had decided that cybersecurity was going to be a growth business very early uh, in the early days of the the internet and uh, in the early days of of, net, of networks of large networks and corporations that would need to protect their information and their access. So Brian understood that. He brought a real view of the world. Chris Newton also had a view of the world, but was within the confines of technology and the uh, stuff that he was seeing that was flying past him as a technologist. So um, uh, yeah, Brian, absolutely. He was prepped for this. This was Brian. Brian thought this was a moment. So, uh, Mark, um, this this is so important that we remember that luck and timing had a lot to do with this. They they uh, they caught the cusp of the uh, cybersecurity boom of uh, 20 years ago. And the and the product uh, rode that the Americans came in as venture capitalists. Uh, American venture capitalists came in and took control of the company and they fired Fired may be too brutal a word, but they basically got rid of Chris Newton, 
the guy who had started the company. And this again is another lesson going forward. Uh, uh, in the search for capital, you'll have to make compromises. In some case, people get hurt and bruised. The interesting thing though, that Chris Newton never let it stop him. He was already thinking about what's the next big thing. And he saw this thing called social media. And it was very early. It was early days of Facebook, uh, technically just before Twitter, uh, but certainly bef before all the other things, platforms we now look at when we talk about social media. And he was playing around with the concept. So when he was dismissed at his own company, uh, he went to a guy named uh, Jerry Pond, who had been chairman of that company. who was also um, had been pushed aside a bit by the Americans. And uh, Jerry Pond uh, was in the uh, process of developing a bunch of angel investors around his his um, consulting and technology company, Mariner Partners. And Jerry said, I'll get I'll fund you for a while and I'll also get you in touch with people who can help you out. And uh, that put him in touch with some people that Jerry knew through New Brunswick Telephone, uh, NBTEL, New Brunswick Telephone, which Jerry had run as CEO for a while until it morphed into the Bell Network. So people, timing, connect. Jerry was the connector to a whole network of people that would help Chris develop Radiant 6, his new company, the social media company, um, into, again, an absolute um, game changer. I, I think we don't know the extent to which these two companies changed the game in North American and global technology. They're far significant than we would have thought. Certainly far significant, I'm sure many Atlantic Canadians know. That takes it a bit of the way and eventually they both sold out the same year. Chris, Chris Newton became the billion dollar man, uh, at least in terms of uh, wealth creation for not so much for himself, but for all kinds of people in the province and, uh, and outside. And, and, uh, and these, I would argue, um, uh, were built on a great culture in Fredericton and St. John, uh, built around technology and now Moncton as well. Um, and, um, and, and, Connectors like Brian Flood and um, and um, and uh, Jerry Pond, who of course um, was able to use the Radiant Six sale to really um, push his dream of an angel investing network. You know, as dozens of companies that he has a hand in, he's trying to get off the mar ground, uh, all built around uh, his East Valley ventures. That takes you up to. You know the sale in two, in uh, in uh, 2011. Anyway, Mark. But uh, uh, as you know, I went farther and looked at the implications of those deals. Right, and and one of the things that I mean, obviously, there's all so many tangents we can you know take this conversation on that are interesting around economic development. Uh, you know, in this region, uh, you know, one one of the the themes that struck really you know was really strong with me is is you know, and especially looking at your experience, right? So we have these long-standing, you know, legacy, you know, families and companies in, in Atlanta, Canada and, you know, in New Brunswick, you know, there's, there's the Irvings and, and, and there's the Olins with, with Moosehead Breweries and, and there's the McCain's and, uh, and, you know, and now we have Cook Aquaculture and the, these companies that are firmly planted, uh, built over many generations 
um, but you know, did it largely on their own as 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 family businesses. Uh, not didn't necessarily spawn other opportunity for other entrepreneurs. Although I know in your book you you trace the way in which some of that is you know changing a little bit. Yeah. Um, and we talk about the McCain's in that light. But then then we have like these. Uh, you know, these bright burning lights like Q1 Labs and Radiant 6 and their modern tech companies um, that now have now been sold and have left, have their legacies left behind. But one of the interesting things to be curious about your perspective on is, is this whole idea of the, the, the kind of the Jerry Pond effect, right? And there are other connectors in this community, but coming out of MBTEL, uh, his long career in MBTEL, he helped create uh, opportunity and not, not just employment, uh, but, but entrepreneurial opportunity by wanting to to nurture that that community, and I, I I know he's not alone, but but stands as a big example of that. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about like that the very different way of developing the economy? That you know, I mean, there's obviously strong echoes. The Jerry Pond is like KC, uh, strongly committed. You make the point in your book that he's very strongly committed to building in the Atlantic, and he had reservations over, you know, even some of the, the, the sale of, of Q1 labs and, and the growing influence of the U S on that company, um, and making sure we keep it Atlantic. What, what, what's your, what's your take on the evolution of that culture here? Well, I mean, you, it's a, it's a big issue. I mean, uh, and I have a great deal of respect for those founding families that, um, created those great businesses, um, and um, they've been they've been much more globally active than we sometimes think. Uh, they're, uh, a company like Irving Oil is really uh, active in the in a global marketplace, and uh, as as uh, Danal uh, points out, so it's good to read that book and to see how they how Arthur Irving and Casey Irving created that uh, uh, inter- that company and its uh, but but. We can't think of them as totally isolated. Uh, they, they didn't do it all in, in New Brunswick. They did it by um, stepping out. And you look at McCain's, and they've always been uh, um, very forceful in stepping out in the world. But they're they're, they're essentially uh, they're the old New Brunswick, uh, which is, they are now finding their way in the new in the new world, and they're doing it quite well. Jerry Pond is a different model. Uh, he doesn't own a lot of assets. He doesn't own mills. He doesn't own a lot of physical assets. His um, emphasis is intellectual and network. Um, Jerry Pond has used his own um, um, his own uh, networks and his own uh, his own um, ability to connect people. That's almost like the there's the McCain's, the Irvings. Uh, there are perhaps the cook aquaculture, and this is sort of the fourth, um, the fourth model. And this is the networked entrepreneur, uh, a guy who doesn't have a lot of physical assets, who owns a nice house in St. John, but really by force of character, personality networks and the people he brings into his, uh, sphere are people with intellectual knowledge assets, uh, the Marcel Lebruns. And uh, I think what I sought in the book is to combine the two. I think I think you you really want businesses with a strong sense of home and community, like the McCain's and the Irvings have been, but you also want them well networked out into the the digital knowledge, the global world of uh, of uh, of um, 
of uh, the internet and uh, digital economy. Jerry Pond has been able to do that. I think the test going forward is what are the implications for New Brunswick? Will these entrepreneurs stay once they've seen Silicon Valley? And you come around to uh, can you create a stay-at-home culture built around digital assets and knowledge assets that will stay in the community, will net, continue to network in the community, and Jerry Pond is the model of doing that, but will these new entrepreneurs do the same thing? Will they become as attached to building New Brunswick as the Irvings and McCain's clearly are? And I think we are starting to see that uh, in this group of people. We're starting to see an attachment to community that uh, perhaps we didn't see in the past. I think a lot of young people left the province, partly just to prove themselves in places like Wall Street and Bay Street, but also because they couldn't see the breadth of opportunity here in, in Atlantic Canada. And now you're starting to see that as a as a real possibility. You're seeing it through the lives of these people I've profiled in the book. You know, I know in, in New Brunswick and this be true in Nova Scotia and the rest of Atlantic Canada, we've got used to these big companies that, you know, that, that lay roots and then succeed over, over generations. Right. So it's, it's a new thing to, to see, you know, a, a Q1 labs emerge, um, a Radiant six emerge. And then, you know, the, the, the end result, the success quote is the, is, is the exit and the, and the sale. Um, is it given that that you know it's a very different kind of entrepreneurial culture, uh, and you can have a success mean you sold the company you know for <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars? How, how do you ass assess legacy and and the ability to have those um, companies create a lasting legacy, an economic legacy in, in the province? Well, the book does try to confront that, and I I know uh, there's an executive McCain, of McCain who says, okay, that's very nice selling it. Uh, to outsiders, in the case in Q1 Labs or Radiant 6, to U.S. outsiders at that. But uh, what about the province? Uh, um, uh, what about, uh, does this really um, create a lasting legacy? Uh, isn't it just another flipping or another sellout of resources? And these cases are um, intellectual resources. He wasn't you know, he wasn't saying this was the case. He was just posing that question. What what does the province get out of this? Well, I tried to trace. It's much more difficult to trace that story in New Brunswick uh, since uh, the sellout. Uh, but I I tried in a, in a, in a few cases. Um, I did it through Q1 Labs and the building of a working with UNB, uh, working with uh, some of the big players in the Brunswick economy, working with the government. Uh, to build a cybersecurity ecosystem that seems to have some legs. Uh, so that's one of the things. In, in an interesting way, Q1 Labs really couldn't, I mean, IBM, the purchaser of Q1 Labs, is still a pretty forceful, interesting player in the Fredericton and the, the greater Atlantic Canadian economy. Um, so that's, it's hard a thing to measure. Will that turn out? I think it has some great aspects to it. It has some great possibilities, but it's, it's early. And there has to be a public sector commitment to that idea because it does need public sector money to some extent. Radiant 6 was a different legacy. Radiant 6 did not need much venture capital. It, it, what 
there was was entirely Canadian. So when it went, when it was sold for 400 million or whatever the price was, there was quite a lot of wealth creation in New Brunswick, in central Canada too, but in New Brunswick. And that was very important to the development of, um, of technology and entrepreneurship in the Maritimes. That, that, that was a big stone that's still rippling. The money created, the, the financial value created by that deal. So Q1 Labs created, helped create an ecosystem that's still chugging along, trying to find uh, its way. And uh, that's encouraging. Uh, Radiant 6 um, created a, an angel investing network and created real wealth in the hands of people who have continued to recycle. Of course, Jerry Pond is the best example, but also his colleagues at Mariner Partners. This is my hope to create a, a model of how you create economic growth. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, Q1 Labs and Radiant 6 have contributed to the economic well-being of New Brunswickers in a number of ways, while the companies themselves became American-owned, you know, U.S.-owned by U.S. Goliaths like Salesforce and IBM. So it's a very mixed um, kind of situation, very hard sometimes to analyze, but I think New Brunswick did well. There's another thing, um, people, and that's the real legacy. There were a group of people who came out of these companies. And here's the remarkable thing, uh, Mark. They stayed. The mo this was not the model always in New Brunswick of successful people, but they have stayed. They have stayed in Atlantic Canada. Um, they have stayed in specifically in New Brunswick. They do things like working to save the aquatic center. Uh, David Alston in New Brunswick uh, trying an entirely new approach to tourism. Um, you have them as mentors, you have them as board members, and they are investing. A lot of people are frustrated that 10 years, almost a decade after the deals, there's not been a big one. Um, but these things take time. And I think there are the ingredients, if we get the right public policy, if we continue to find relentless people like, uh, like um, Brian Flood and Jerry Pond, I think it can continue to happen. But in such a fast moving industry, you do need still need patience, patient money. What have been some of the impacts? Because I know this the, the this story, even though there obviously there's a very strong New Brunswick, uh, you know, St. John Fredericton uh, thrust of this story. Uh, there are, were ripple effects in 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 Nova Scotia, in Newfoundland. Um, what what were what are some of the you know the the, the good companies, some of yeah. the you know the the major players that that have emerged mm -hmm. since this time, not necessarily mm -hmm. connected to that because they, they were developing businesses in their own right. Um, but how does this story play out in Nova Scotia and places like Newfoundland? Well, it's like a as I say, a big stone in the in the water. It has a lot of ripples, and uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs woke up uh, uh, one morning uh, to see this Radiant Six deal, which was the first of the two deals, and um, they uh, sort of said, "What?" Radian 6, Radian 6 was sold for that much money, uh, uh, those guys. I mean, um, and a lot of young entrepreneurs, young and old entrepreneurs in places like Halifax and St. John's, uh, who knew a little bit about Radian 6, had even been perhaps interested in teaming up with Radian 6 in many ways. Uh, they sort of said, oh, yeah, 
that's pretty interesting. They were able to um, to cash out. Uh, the, the, the dollar figure wasn't so important as itself, but it was a measure of what you could do from that region, from this region of the country. So uh, there was an entrepreneur, Gavin Uma, and, Uma and, um, in um, Cape Breton. Um, he saw this happen. Uh, he was working on a, uh, a, a different kind of company, a different kind of tech company, young tech company, putting together people from University of PEI, uh, Cape Breton University, and based in Halifax at the time. They saw this. They eventually sold their company for 70 to 80 million, which was a, a revolutionary. Um, that was a big price for Halifax in those days, their Halifax company. And, and what kind of company was that again? Well, um, Go Instant was a, a company that could be used by um, um, by companies. It was it was bought by Salesforce. Could be part of the Salesforce, uh, um, and it could be uh, used. Uh, as a technology that um, companies could guide their clients online in the use of their technology. Um, and it was very useful in the customer relationship management uh, uh, arsenal that Salesforce could bring to the game. So a real niche product, you know, it wasn't like uh, like Radiant Six. It wasn't the revolution that was changing social media, but 70, 80 million US in those days. Uh, um, and it was the founders of that company attributed to some extent to uh, to uh, Javon McDonald and uh, Gavin Uma to uh, to the the example and the competitive spark of the Radiant Six. If those guys could do it, so can we. Well, way over in St. John's, Newfoundland, um, the people at Verifin, a company which would came out of uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland, uh, people at Verifin uh, actually were interested in maybe doing some business with uh, with Radiant Six. When they saw the Radiant Six deal, I think it spurred them on to greater and greater things as well. Uh, they saw Radiant Six as emblematic of the broader Atlantic region's capabilities and. You know, we often talk. I often talk about isolation, and there's remoteness, and remoteness doesn't mean the same as it did at one time. Again, as Jerry Pond and others have proven, um, uh, remoteness is a relative concept, and certainly Newfoundland and Labrador um, uh, were not close to the hotspots of uh, technology. But Verifin never acted like it was remote. Um, and it benefited from a strong sense of uh, identity with Newfoundland and Labrador to build their business. So um, Go Instant, Verifin. Verifin is now a billion-dollar company. Perhaps it is the only... Now, Verifin is an interesting one. I, I get you to pause a little bit on that one because that... Um, what is it that Verifin does? What's, the, what's, their, what's their service? Uh, they provide the banking industry, 3,000 banks or so, with... Um, really uh, detecting fraud, their fraud detection technologies using artificial intelligence. You know, they started this business the, the, coming out of um, Memorial. The intention was to build a business around mining, uh, using artificial intelligence uh, to uh, drive uh, mining machines underground. Um, and um, they uh, they could reduce uh, the d the danger of mining. Uh, they could do a lot of the artificial intelligence could uh, make decisions for for mining machines 
remotely controlled mining machines. Wonderful technology at that time. There didn't seem to be a market for it. So the guys, uh, three guys out of um, Memorial, um, they did a shift. They did a pivot. And they went into uh, financial uh, financial institutions. Said, you know, the same same kind of artificial intelligence aids to people trying to detect fraud, uh, getting guidance on where potential fraud existed in their networks, and to 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 point it out and to root it out. Uh, and they are phenomenally successful. Uh, kind of a, another hidden nugget in Canadian uh, technology out of St. John's. Now they have another advantage, they say. We've been able to hire extensively uh, out, of, um, out of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, people don't want to leave necessarily. Uh, we have kind of a moat around the, <laughs> uh, around the, uh, the island. We are a company which benefits from being from St. John's. Um, and um, this is often thought of as a impediment, but definitely isn't. It creates a loyalty and an engagement with uh, their workforce. And um, they, they've also been able to tap the private equity field, uh, the private equity world, which is maybe a little more patient, um, still tough minded, but a little more patient, uh, not as geared to the big uh, uh, going, going public event. Um, and uh, investors have stayed with them for the, uh, these private equity uh, investors have stayed with them for quite a while. And they did a recent refinancing, which gives them a long runway as, and they own, they have a lot of, they have a lot of employee ownership. So, you know, just like um, Radiant 6 and Q1 Labs really benefited from a workforce that was loyal because loyalty is very strong and um, company loyalty among employees is, very strong in Atlantic Canada, um, and um, and um, low turnovers. Uh, all the Atlantic uh, um, high tech successes have benefited from low turnover, as compared with Silicon Valley or other uh, um, uh, more predictable uh, centers of technology. So there are some very strong parallels between Radiant Six and uh, Verifin, but Verifin has a unique culture. If I could just add one thing, uh, Mark, they, all these companies have led, been led by people who are very locally rooted and, and uh, understand the local marketplace, the local labor marketplace. But they also are absolutely maniacal about getting their um, people out into the world to connect. I don't know where we're going to come out of this COVID-19, whether face-to-face communication. I think it will go back. And it will still be an important aspect, but that's that's the challenge for a lot of uh, Atlantic entrepreneurs is getting out and meeting people. You still have to do that uh, to gain venture capital, private equity, customers. That's the lesson of uh, Q1 Labs and Radiant Six is they aggressively they didn't go after their local market exclusively or even primarily. They very early went out and went after a, a North American and global market, and they did it through face-to-face contact. Right, and they 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 knew to get their their product accepted, they needed to get to get it rather than focus locally. They they went right for world markets. Well, there is um, you you kind of think that there are a lot of sympathetic 
people who have a lot of empathy for you, as one venture capitalist said, in your home market. Um, there are, uh, and certainly Q1 Labs got a lot of support locally from, um, you know, University of Brunswick, obviously, the New Brunswick government, uh, NB Power, um, the, um, the, the local pension fund for uh, public servants in New Brunswick. Um, so there's no denying that. But very quickly, um, they got contracts and they also got uh, capital funding. But very quickly, they concluded that you will never really succeed if you th- if you confine yourself in the early days to these markets. You have to go out and test yourself and get on the radar screen of your global uh, markets and to put yourself up against your potential global competitors. Um, if you spend a lot of time trolling in the local market, when you do go out in the world, um, you'll be an innocent, you'll be easy picking, um, you won't survive. You have to go out early and often and take on the big guys in your marketplace. Uh, it, it, it just it, revisiting a couple of, couple of themes because I was think, been thinking about um, you know, how, how you, since in re- reading your book and then reading Dan Al's book, uh, you know, building companies that have lasting impact, mm-hmm. um, you know, addressing labor force challenges, which are huge in, in Atlanta, Canada. And so I found it very interesting reading the book that, you know, it feels like there's this balance between, you know, we have Verifin and the Radiant Sixes and the Q1 Labs have these very loyal, highly trained people working for them. Uh, and, and because they're not in a place like Silicon Valley, they're not jumping around from company to company. Uh, they're staying with us and they're loyal to us, but at the same time needing to knowing that there's still a shortage there, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's that balance between we're in this small place so we can have this very loyal workforce and keep them. Uh, and you know, do we have enough of them? (laughs) You know, and that's always the conversation in Atlantic Canada. Uh, and then you have the issue of like, uh, and then the, uh, Verifin, uh, part of the reason I brought up that one too, as an example, is just because, you know, the, the McKinney executive brought this up. Um, yep. Should we be building these companies to last rather than to sell? Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. Uh, the Verifin example is one of, that's con- that they're continuing to build. Now they may sell it, but, but right now they're still trying to build that in Newfoundland. Well, that's why I brought Verifin into the book, both for two reasons. One, they were no doubt spurred on by Radiant 6. Radiant 6 is the great exemplar of what can be done in the Maritimes and Q1 Labs to some extent as well. Um, Well, to a big extent as well. But um, yeah, Verifin is the model of where we might go forward. But, you know, public policy has to be in support of this. And I think every government in New Brunswick over the past 20 years understands that the immigration thing is so vital. And uh, what I've tried in the book is to, to show how uh, people who have come to New Brunswick, uh, maybe to go to university or, or to work for these companies, have, you know, in many cases contributed to the uh, the fabric. Uh, we have to continue to do uh, a strong focus on immigration. It's been so successful in some parts of New Brunswick, I know. And uh, but now we're in a COVID nineteen period where immigration is at a standstill. And we have to see coming, we have to get back on that track as soon as things are safe and efficient for, uh, we really have to restoke that fire, uh, get that immigration going. Um, because there is a shortage in some key areas and it's, part of it's in cyber cyber security, but also artificial intelligence uh, devoted to all kinds of things like Verifin is doing. So 
the uh, other companies have formed the distributed um, uh, Gavinuma's new company in uh, out of Nova Scotia has a has a very distributed um, workforce all the way from you know Western Europe uh, through all the way through Canada to the West Coast and uh, some of them can work on that basis uh, some of these software companies but immigration is so so important and um, uh, and skills uh, to skill creation to maintain university um, programs that provide engineers and scientists and writers and I happen to believe humanist and and uh, I should not say humanist, but I should say uh, the arts are also an important breeding ground of of creative people and all university college education has to continue to be supported to turn out the best people. You've been uh, really generous with your time, and I'd actually like um, before I let you go, I'd love to do a little bit of a where are they now exercise oh, <laughs> and and talk a little bit about cause we, we talk about these. You know, the, these companies that were built and these companies were sold and the legacy of a lot of them is is the people who mm-hmm. will continue to create opportunity here. Um, and so t- tell me a little bit about where uh, some of these really key people from from Q Labs and Radiant 6 ended up. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting. Um, so uh, Daniela DeGrasse um, is um, who was very important in she was actually involved in all three of the sort of important startups, uh, including Radiant 6 and Q1 Labs, but also the old iMagic, um, um, the old iMagic company uh, that spawned so many of these people. So she's had an interesting career. She's um, st- stayed a while with, uh, with Radiant 6 afterwards, as many of them did. And now she's really helping companies, uh, often centered in, Moncton, but elsewhere as well. Uh, she's really working on um, helping really spawn new companies all throughout New Brunswick and the and the Atlantic area. So she's become um, sort of a uh, a godmother, if you wish, of uh, of uh, of a lot of these companies. And she's also working with um, she's also working in a St. John company. She's she her specialty is sort of developing companies. She's not necessarily a big owner. Uh, but she's very good at building companies, and she's working with uh, Roxanne Fairweather and Dave Grebick in, in a in uh, a spinoff from Innovation right now, uh, which uh, um, has a great future as well. So that's one. Uh, I'll, I'll move a little more quickly. Um, uh, Marcel LeBron is a mentor and a very vital figure in the in the. Uh, in the uh, Frederick scene, but he's also um, a social entrepreneur with uh, uh, a children's camp uh, that uh, plays uh, to a large part to the need to uh, deal with uh, um, children living in poverty and give them opportunities. Um, Chris Newton uh, went through some health issues, is finally bursting forth uh, with a new company called Potential Motors, which he is helping uh, coming out of University of New Brunswick, and he and Marcel are both involved in that. Uh, Dave Alston has been an entrepreneur at large and a and a uh, strong uh, strong advocate in New Brunswick, and he's um, of entrepreneurship. and he, he currently is involved in this Timbertop uh, uh, tourism venture in in Nova Scotia, but has his hands in so many things throughout New Brunswick. Uh, 
Chris Ramsey, we haven't talked about, but Chris is um, um, uh, Chris has been involved a lot of uh, you know involved in the ski hill in New Brunswick and now in the aquatic center, the hope for a new aquatic center. Really community involved, uh, which I think you're seeing a lot of these people are. Um, you know, uh, there are there are a lot of different stories in this book, um, but uh, those are a few of them. If they're trying to think of, of another, um, Brian Dunphy has been involved in a couple of tech companies that uh, and now sort of in the event uh, space of uh, software and uh, uh, software systems around the event uh, event uh, management systems. Um, um, trying to think of a few more. What about uh, what about yeah one in one in particular a couple that are standing out for me. One is one is uh, was it with Sandy Bird? Oh, Sandy Bird. How can I forget Sandy Bird? Yes, Sandy is. Um, this is the real promise: is that you know after these things spawn startups. They're a little slow. It's been, and but Sandy has taken uh, um, taken hold of that, and he has a new startup in the cybersecurity realm. And really, it's it's in a way the great great hope, um, and um, just like uh, uh, it's it's in the same realm, it's in the same area, cybersecurity, uh, it's in the cloud, uh, um, and uh, he's teamed up with a, a, a an American, an Irish American fellow who was involved in Q1 Labs named Brendan Hannigan. So those networks are very very important. Those. Uh, those uh, relationships that were drawn and these these uh, original companies are still uh, uh, are still playing a role. Um, Mary Jo Tebow uh, has become sort of one of the bulwarks of the uh, New Brunswick uh, technology scene. I know she's now involved in a um, in a um, in the uh, private school in Rothsay, but uh, has been uh, continues to play. Um, a really progressive role in that in the network uh, as a mentor, um, and as I say, they've stayed. They've I can't think of anyone who was significant in the founding group who has sort of said, "Okay, I've made a little bit of money." That's not to say that they should be punished if they didn't stay, uh, if they went off, because these things. It's very important that we quit thinking of people as somehow abandoning the province or abandoning the regions. They're they're testing their metal in other markets, other places, and and they maintain their networks back home. And that's really what you want is to build those networks out into the world. In the uh, and, you know, I'll kind of close with a question um, uh, for you on on kind of again on it's a it's a legacy question, right? Like we yeah. tend. The, the the tech companies and I, I had a conversation with Jerry Pond about this, you know, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, and you know, he kind of joked about you know, you know, getting people to wear his company uh, Marin or getting people to wear Marin or jackets around town. And the joke that he was making was that, you know, we have these very visible signs of these companies in in our community and in in, in New Brunswick and in Nova Scotia. That means Sobeys. That means Irving. That means Moosehead. That means and but they're very visible in our communities. The, the tech community, because a lot of them are service B2B, not, not customers mm-hmm. directly, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they don't, they haven't built head offices with, you know, their, their names on the buildings tend to be a little a more, a little bit more invisible to the average person. But, you know, you have, you know, companies that are, you know, 
growing in influence and, and, and size like Soma Detect and Introhive and Sunray um, Security. And that, you know, that's just naming a few. There, there's more. There are the innovations. There are the procedure flows, right? And yeah. Yeah. But they're not visible to people. How, you know, cl- on, in closing here, how, how should we see the impact? And, and do, these, do these companies have the ability to help transform the Atlantic economy, even if people don't see uh, their signs when they walk by on the main streets? That's such a good story. And I remember that was comments by Jerry very vividly. If you walk around the streets of St. John, you uh, can't imagine that there's this army of people that uh, aren't identified as um, innovation or procedure flow or, uh, you know, um, the other number of companies, Genesis, that have done well and that uh, really are the bulwarks of the St. John economy, but they don't have a physical mill or they don't have a physical refinery to remind people. So there's a challenge getting that word out. One of the aims of my book was to do that. But I'm interested in how the cybersecurity thing will play out. Maybe it's the model is uh, you do a lot of work in schools. Um, I think uh, the technology uh, industry in New Brunswick uh, has to continue to do the kind of things like they're doing in cybersecurity is to create the awareness among a new generation of young people who do understand this technology or come to it more instinctively. And if you can develop uh, coding and uh, cybersecurity skills in this broad educational, um, it not only creates a skilled workforce going forward, uh, but the future generation will really know how wealth, you know, what the potential is for creating value and employment uh, in, in the region. So look at the schools to some extent, not in an indoctrination point of view, but, you know, how can the technology department, technology industry continue to instruct young um, Atlantic Canadians uh, about this important technology and, and uh, people will become more identified with it. Um, obviously, all the kind of community building things um, that you have to do, uh, whether you're working with hockey teams or, as I say, the the new swimming pool, but be be community be community minded, uh, be philanthropic, um, step up with donations so that uh, not everything in the province uh, is is named Beaverbrook or Irving or McCain. It's great that we've got all those things, but there are contributions from tech entrepreneurs as well uh, or putting their name on buildings so that people say, who is that guy or who is that young woman? Or, who is that person who, who lent their name to the, uh, uh, to a contribution to, uh, to a library uh, or to a scholarship for young people? It takes a while for that kind of work to seep down in the community. Right. And then also seeing opportunity, right? So you're young, young New Brunswickers, young Nova Scotians, and you think, you know, my opportunities are with, uh, and again, this is not to, to disparage them in any way, because obviously their, their companies provide a lot of employment. But if you see, you know, the Irvings and you see the, the Mooseheads, or you see these opportunities that are sitting right in front of you, you yeah. can, that can be where you think you, you want to work. And then one yeah. of the conversations I had had with yeah. Jerry around this was there's, there are these invisible opportunities yeah. right, yeah. of these yeah. companies that are doing things. And, and he had made the point in one of our conversations that, that there, you know, there's, there are these companies that em- 
you know, a few tech companies that employ, you know, nearly a thousand people in this community and yeah. nobody knows that. Nobody knows and that. so there are these actual mm-hmm. opportunities, future opportunities for people to be entrepreneurs, for people to, um, you know, uh, have an employment opportunity they didn't think was necessarily there. They thought it was maybe in Toronto, but it's actually mm-hmm. in Fredericton, St. John, Halifax, right? Mark, that's a that's a great point. And, you know, to get these kinds of jobs, these knowledge jobs, these digital jobs, um, there's often been the idea that you had to go outside and, and you don't. These companies are there and, and they have a fight uh, on their hands to remind young uh, New Brunswickers that uh, there is a career and you could do your career here in here in the province, uh, not by going outside. And uh, look at the balance between um, a number of these little startups never uh, produce the jobs that uh, the Irvings do and the uh, McCain's do in the province. And we still need those. Uh, we still need those jobs really badly. Those jobs that the legacy companies have done so, so much to uh, provide in, the, in But, but at the same time, there has to be that balance that a lot of the jobs of the future are very different. The knowledge assets, uh, um, uh, digital economy, um, and they don't become apparent in the same way. They don't appear in the same way. They're not a store. They're not a mill. And so you've got to continually fight that battle to let people know those opportunities exist. Right. And I know we've actually, uh, I can't believe we actually had an hour long conversation about all this without, uh, you know, talking about Frank McKenna at all. Um, <laughs> but obviously this is something that, <laughs> and I'm just realizing that, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'd had a conversation with him on a podcast, um, uh, several weeks ago and, you know, and, and he obviously was one of the table setters for the creation of this kind of economy from, you know, a political level, but also from an entrepreneurial level continues to be connected to all this. But, you know, that's one of the themes that he continues to hammer on even 25 years after being premier. Well, I th- you can you can debate Frank's contributions, but um, and I think, you know, they've been positive. But the big thing he gave New Brunswick was um, an idea. And the idea was uh, that we can do it. Uh, we can do it from here. Uh, we can have e-government. So I think the next step also is uh, uh, for governments and public policymakers to f- frame an idea that can engage the the public and uh, take the province forward. And uh, I mean, rural broadband is part of that, obviously, because if you're going to profit from this time in history, you have to have rural broadband. So uh, I'd be interested to see what comes in the future in terms of engaging people in a truly exciting idea um, that can draw together the old economy aspects of the Irvings and the McCain's with the vibrant new economy people of Marcel Lebron and uh, and Jerry Pond and Daniela DeGrasse. Right. Well, thanks very much, Gordon. This has been a, a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a great one, Mark. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the latest episode of Huddle Home Office, and that was my conversation with uh, Gordon Pitts, author of Unicorn in the Woods. Thank you, Gordon, for that great conversation. And that was the 20th episode of Huddle Home Office. Uh, we've been uh, recording since uh, the beginning of the pandemic uh, back in uh, back in April, and it's hard to believe we've hit 20 episodes already. And if you're new to Home Office, there's lots of good uh, archived interviews for you to listen to. You can subscribe to us at your favorite podcast platform. 
uh, whether it's Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or however else you listen to your podcast, please do go subscribe. Search for Huddle Home Office, and uh, you'll find this interview and uh, others archived there. We had great conversations with uh, well, Marcel Lebrun and David Alston of uh, Radiant Six fame. They were our, our first interview subjects on episode number one. We've also had uh, conversations with uh, Frank McKenna, Deputy Chair of uh, TD Bank and former Premier. And uh, most recently, we talked to Premier uh, Blaine Higgs. We did a series of interviews uh, on the leaders that were running uh, in the uh, latest New Brunswick election. And Premier Higgs was one of those conversations. We had a great chat. Um, and last week, this is actually our second uh, book conversation in a row. Last week, we talked to uh, Daniel Savoie about his new book about Irving Oil and uh, Arthur and KC. So uh, please do uh, go check out those interviews. And uh, Huddle Home Office is produced by Sharice Letson, uh, me, Mark Legier, and uh, Tyler McLean. Please do uh, join us next week and enjoy your weekend. And uh, please, if you're in St. John, go enjoy Burger Week. And if you're anywhere else in Atlanta, Canada, we'll go have a burger and support a local restaurant. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon.